Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Welcome to this morning's panel discussion about American presidents and their religion. The startup National Museum of American Religion is dedicated to telling the profound story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, convinced that understanding this history will help us all see the revolutionary nature and indispensability of the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Through the podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, scholars of American history share stories of religion and its vast influence, for good and ill, on the imperfect yet noble American experiment in self-government and its people. These are tales all Americans need to hear in order to better understand America and their role in its present and future. Just two, two days ago, we all saw the inauguration of the new President of the United States and just the second Catholic president in our history. Knowing that religion is a profound shaper of men and women, Wednesday's peaceful transfer of power made us think that it would be fascinating and even beneficial to 21st century American progress for us to learn more about American presidents and the religions that shaped them. Our panel this morning consists of Gary Scott Smith, who before his retirement chaired the history department at Grove City College and is the author of or editor of 11 books, including Faith in the Presidency, From George Washington to George W. Bush, and Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. Smith is also an ordained minister in the PCUSA and served five congregations as an interim or stated supply pastor. Randall Balmer taught at Barnard College and Columbia University for 27 years before moving to Dartmouth College in 2012, where he was named the Mandel Family Professor in the Arts and Sciences. Randall is the author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, and he is also an Episcopal priest. Balmer was nominated for an Emmy for script writing and hosting the three-part PBS documentary, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory an insightful and engaging journey into the world of conservative Christians in America, based on his book with the same title. Gary and Randall, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Pleasure. Good morning. Attendees, please submit questions in the chat box, and we will reserve 10 or so minutes at the end to answer a few of them. The rest we will answer via email. And listeners, as a thank you for joining us this morning, please go to download storyofamericanreligion.org for a free gift that captures a towering national figure 
in 20th century American history and one who occupies an important place in the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. First, Gary and Randall, could each of you give us what we like to call an opening statement um, about the influence of religion on American presidents uh, on the 45 men who have served as president of the United States and why this is important to our listeners. Gary, let's go ahead and start with you. Well, I would argue, Chris, that religion has been tremendously important in American political history at all levels, from the local to the state to the federal, but it's been especially important in terms of studying and understanding the presidency. We've had an ongoing debate over the last 50 years about whether the United States was established as a Christian nation. I would argue that it certainly wasn't established distinctively as a Christian nation, but I would argue that Judeo-Christian principles had a profound impact on the shaping of our government and on the lives of most of those American presidents. So we've been called a nation with the soul of a church and religion has powerfully impacted many aspects of our, our life. Religion has been very, very pervasive in the United States. It's been very diverse. It's had a huge cultural impact. It's led to a lot of social activism. We've had high levels of attendance of church, synagogue, and more recently mosque in our country, uh, peaking in the mid 20th century, but still a significant membership today um, at about 60% of the population and significant levels of church attendance, a fairly consistent 40% over a long period of time. So with regard to presidents, um, every president we've had with the exception of Barack Obama was raised in a Christian setting in a Christian home. And we've had quite a bit of diversity among our presidents in terms of their religious commitments. We've certainly had a number from mainstream Protestantism, Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists, but we've also had arguably several Unitarian presidents. We've had a couple of Quaker presidents. And as you mentioned, we have our second Catholic president right now. Religion has impacted them in terms of how they've governed, their relationship with various religious bodies, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and more recently Muslim. It's impacted their editorial, their electoral strategies and campaigns. Some elections in particular were very, very significantly influenced by religion. Perhaps we could talk about a couple of those. It's impacted their character. It's impacted their policies. It's impacted what I would call their worldview, their understanding of life and purpose and directed their thinking. So religion has had an enormous impact upon the presidency of the United States. Thank you, Gary, very much. Uh, Randall. Yes, uh, I, I, I guess I, to some degree, I, I certainly agree with uh, what Gary had to say. In some ways, I'm not sure, so sure that I do agree with him. Uh, I, I think it's probably important at this point to make a distinction between the quantity of religion in America and the quality of religion in America. 
that is to say, we have had uh, uh, presidents throughout American history uh, who have had some relationship with the faith. I think many of them, as Gary says, uh, a, a quite an intimate relationship with, with their, their chosen faith. Um, but I'm not sure it's always played out in terms of policies the way that uh, it might. But uh, that I expect is, is, is part of, uh, of uh, the conversation that we will have today. Uh, I guess I, I to, to kind of uh, provide a, an anecdote about this, I would go back to the 1960 presidential election, which I expect we'll probably revisit in the course of this conversation. But one moment that I remember in particular was uh, the gathering of Protestant ministers, 150 Protestant ministers at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. shortly after Labor Day, which of course is the traditional start of the uh, general election campaign. That was the election uh, where John Kennedy, Roman Catholic, was running against uh, Richard Nixon, uh, a Quaker. And uh, after the closed door meeting, uh, the purpose of which was to discuss how to how to um, uh, frustrate Kennedy's electoral ambitions and elected elect uh, Richard Nixon in the in the November uh, general election. Uh, uh, the leaders of this gathering uh, held a press camp conference. Uh, Roman Vincent Peale was there and uh, several others, and uh, they explained to the assembled uh, reporters that the purpose of their meeting was to discuss the uh, what they considered the pernicious effects of John Kennedy's election to the White House because he was Roman Catholic. And one of the reporters uh, asked, well, Richard Nixon's a Quaker. Uh, Quakers historically are pacifists. Did you guys discuss how uh, Richard Nixon's faith might affect his conduct as president? Whereupon Peel responded, which I'm sure was not intended to be funny, uh, with a re remark, well, I'm not sure it's ever let him, I'm not sure he's ever let it bother him. And I think, you know, that to me, I uh, probably uh, a bit more than Gary perhaps, uh, characterizes uh, the effect of religion on the conduct of American presidents. Okay, fair enough. Thank you, Gary and Randall, for those opening uh, statements that will um, help us frame the discussion from here to the end of the hour. Gary, let's go back to you. Uh, can you tell us uh, of one consequential president in the 18th uh, and early 19th century, say up to the Civil War, and the religion that shaped him, perhaps a story that would uh, be of interest and beneficial to our listeners? Sure. Let me, let me say this, though, first. Um, I never argue that religion is the sole motivating factor for any president's uh, policies, but I think it has, and Randy and I disagree about this to some extent, I think. I think it has had a shaping impact on particular policies of particular presidents. And in the mix, you've got their desire to be reelected if they're a first-term president. You've got their party platform. You've got all the constituencies that they are responsible to. Um, you've got many aspects of their personality and their relationships. But I do think that religion has played a significant role in informing and directing policy. And in the two books that you mentioned that I wrote, I try to give examples in the case of, turns out to be 22 presidents. But if you want me to pick a particular president, I'm gonna talk about Thomas Jefferson. Um, Thomas Jefferson is of course, one of the most significant American presidents. Our first secretary of state 
our second vice president and our third president. And for him, religion, I would argue, is very important, but it wasn't traditional Christianity. I would argue that essentially Jefferson was a Unitarian. Um, he calls himself famously a sect of one in that his views were so different from everyone else's. He was idiosyncratic. But if you had to pin, pinpoint him, I would say he was a Unitarian because he didn't believe Jesus was divine. Um, everyone's probably heard of the so-called Jefferson Bible, which was actually the second iteration of a document that he wrote, the first one in 1804, uh, and then the second one in 1819 uh, about the philosophy and life of Jesus. And famously, he cut out the parts of the New Testament that were miraculous and stuck with the parts that he thought taught moral truth. But throughout his life, he, he consistently um, not, not publicly, but privately consistently denied the deity of Christ. And I would argue, though, that he attended church pretty faithfully, usually Episcopal churches, um, that for him, uh, religious liberty was a very, very significant issue. We know him because of the Virginia statute on that topic and his work with Madison in helping establish religious liberty and disestablish the Anglican Episcopal Church in Virginia. But I would argue that for him, um, there was a religious underpinning to that argument. He said, God doesn't force people to believe anything or practice any particular religion. And if God doesn't do it, who's all powerful, then certainly the state should not do it either. And he was convinced that the truth would prevail, that we needed to have a free marketplace of ideas. And certainly uh, Madison elaborates on that in his um, memorial as well. But, you know, Jefferson was, I think, a, a very significant figure religiously, in part because of the election of 1800 between John Adams and himself, where Jefferson was accused repeatedly by the Federalists of being an atheist, an infidel, uh, at least a, a French deist, uh, somebody who didn't have a traditional orthodox view of Christianity. The interesting thing to me is that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's religious views were fairly similar. I would argue both of them were essentially Unitarians who didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. And yet Washington is revered as a great religious uh, leader, whereas for uh, Jefferson is highly criticized for holding the same kinds of views. So I'll stick with that. But to me, Jefferson is a towering figure in trying to understand religion and the presidency. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Gary. That was Super enlightening. Uh, Randall, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the religion and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, okay, all right. pa paint, paint the portrait here of, of this, if you could. Sure. Well, I, um, um, the, it, the, the rotation worked the way it did. I was going to talk about Jefferson as well as being the, the, the key figure, but uh, Lincoln certainly is, is, is fascinating. I, I, what I find uh, terribly uh, curious about Lincoln is that after his assassination, there was a spate of uh, literature that appeared in the American scene, all sorts of religious denominations claiming that just before his death, Lincoln was about to become a fill in the blank, Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever it might be. They were sure that because of, of, of uh, 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 Lincoln's uh, 
in, in particular, his, his familiarity with the King James Version of the Bible, uh, that uh, he, was, uh, he was about to make some sort of uh, grand profession of faith, but was uh, uh, thwarted from doing so by his uh, unfortunate assassination, which of course occurred on Good Friday and Americans have uh, read a great deal of significance into that. Lincoln is fascinating for all sorts of reasons, of course, um, but I think one of the reasons that he uh, remains such a, a, uh, a central figure is that he was so conversant with the Bible. He understood the, the, the Bible, and you have the cadences of the King James Version appearing again and again in his, in his speeches. Uh, he was, I suppose, uh, you know, I guess I've never thought about it in, in these terms, but uh, as Gary said about uh, both Jefferson and, and Washington, uh, you know, uh, being uh, what, at least nascent Unitarians, uh, in some ways, uh, Lincoln pretty much fits into that category as well, although he certainly was not a member of the Unitarian communion. Uh, he had similar ideas about uh, who, who Jesus was. And it's very clear that he was uh, shaped by faith. And I certainly would agree with Gary on that point, uh, but uh, he never made uh, explicit affiliation with any one particular tradition. Okay. Uh, Randall, feel free to, to comment uh, as you wanted to, a little bit about Jefferson, if you'd like, anything that maybe Gary... No, I'm not sure I would, I, I could say anything that would... Uh, would disagree with what Gary said. Uh, I, 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 Jefferson certainly took Jesus very seriously. I would argue more seriously than a lot of people who claim to be his followers these days take Jesus. Uh, but he saw Jesus as a moral exemplar. And uh, one of his famous uh, quotes, which I will paraphrase because I don't have it um, verbatim in my head, was that uh, Jefferson considered himself a Christian in the way that Jesus himself considered himself a Christian, that is to be a, a moral exemplar. And uh, there's no question that uh, Jefferson took Jesus very, very seriously. Gary, uh, maybe we can uh, ask you, uh, as an expert on this topic, uh, anything you want to add to what Randall said about Lincoln and his religion? Well, Lincoln's <clears throat> second inaugural address is often considered to be one of the most theological public statements in American history because of <clears throat> his use of the Bible, his use of, of theological terms, his willingness to extend forgiveness and charity to the, to the rebels in the South. Um, I, would, I would argue that um, Lincoln had a period of skepticism and he remained skeptical in some ways throughout the remainder of his life. Um, Randall mentioned about after his death, people trying to claim him. I would argue that people tried to claim him even earlier than that uh, for their particular religious traditions. And there are various stories about him having Christian conversion experiences in relationship to uh, the death of his two sons, in relationship to what was going on during the Civil War. Um, I would say that he was a predestinarian, but not in the traditional Christian sense. Uh, he certainly believed that there was a pattern and plan to history and that uh, people needed to fit in and, and go along with that plan, but it wasn't definitive that God was directing that plan. Uh, he was up and down on that particular issue. But he did attend church fairly regularly in Springfield, 
in the 1850s and to some extent as president um, in DC, he attended a Presbyterian church. Um, and yeah, he knew the Bible extremely well, better than uh, most Americans at this time, most pastors even. And I think it did have a strong shaping impact on him and certainly on his character, his sense of morality. Um, and, and I would argue, you know, in terms of how he viewed the crucible of the Civil War and how he tried to deal with personal tragedy and national tragedy. Okay. Thank you, Gary and Randall, about uh, for those those uh, comments. To get closer to uh, two days ago, the inauguration of the Second Catholic, let's jump uh, many decades to early, early um, 20th century uh, up to World War II. Gary, let's stay with you. Can you tell us about the religion of one of the consequential presidents of this time period and how that influenced him? Well, I hope I don't steal Randall's thunder this time, but I'm going to pick FDR. Ah, and <laughs> that was my second choice. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Um, I think very few Americans, maybe more now, because there have been a couple books that have come out recently on the faith of FDR. But until 15 years ago, I would argue that very few Americans had much of a handle on how deeply uh, religious FDR was. Um, in part because, as a president, he didn't go to church very often. Um, he famously said, I can do anything in the fishbowl of the presidency except say my prayers. He felt when he went to church that he was on display, and that kept him from really communing with God. But when he wasn't president, prior to his presidency, uh, he was fairly involved in the church. And in fact, in 1906, he became a vestryman in the Episcopal Church at St. James Episcopal Church in Hyde Park. And he continued that role all the way until he died. In fact, he was the senior warden for the entire time he was president, which is the highest lay position in the Episcopal Church. And he didn't make any political capital out of it. Uh, he made political capital out of a lot of other things, and he was deeply concerned about his reputation. His presidential library opened in 1941, well before he left the presidency. But uh, he didn't make any capital out of that. But I would argue that prayer was very significant to Roosevelt. Um, of course, he gave that famous prayer uh, after the D-Day invasion began six minutes long that you can access online and listen to. Um, he, Biden just, of course, had a, a prayer service, a worship service before his inauguration uh, in the morning. FDR had one before all four of his inaugurations, as well as on the anniversary of his inauguration every year. Uh, one of the interesting things that he did was in 1935, he sent a letter to 120,000 clergy across the country asking them, what do you think about this new deal that we're engaged in? Give me your feedback. And about uh, 20,000 or so clergy responded. All those letters are at his presidential library in Hyde Park. And it's fascinating to read. Um, a lot of them commented on the repeal of prohibition, which I'm sure he wasn't too happy about, negatively commented on that. But um, a lot of them thought that the spirit of the New Deal was in keeping with Christian faith. And certainly that was the argument that FDR made, that it was part of the biblical mandate to provide a more abundant life. And if people's physical needs were taken care of, then their spiritual, more important spiritual needs could be addressed. I will mention one other thing here. Uh, religion played a very important role for FDR during World War II. He frequently attacked the Nazis as anti-God, anti-Christianity, and 
argued that they were trying to substitute Mein Kampf for the Bible and overthrow Christianity in the world. And during the war, even before the United States uh, got involved after Pearl Harbor, Churchill came and met him off the coast of Newfoundland, and they formulated what's called the Atlantic Charter, some joint principles for waging the war. And during that, they ended up having a worship service, which the two of them organized. And you had chaplains from the U.S. and, and Britain, military forces. They sang Onward Christian Soldiers and a number of other Christian hymns they read from the book of Joshua. And both of them commented later that this service was deeply, deeply meaningful to them. So flash forward to Pearl Harbor, and shortly thereafter, Winston Churchill comes to the United States to speak to Congress and do some other things and meet with FDR. And FDR hauls him off to church um, at Foundry Methodist on Christmas Day, and they have a wonderful service together. And then FDR declares a national day of prayer, and they go off to Christ Church in Alexandria, which was George Washington's, one of George Washington's churches, and have an experience there that they both comment on. So I, I, I argue, I just wrote a book about Winston Churchill that came out this week, and, I, and it's interesting to look at the parallels between the British religious uh, experience and the American experience, and when you look at prime ministers uh, versus presidents. But I argued that that faith relationship, they were both Anglican slash Episcopalians, uh, FDR being considerably more devout than Churchill, but nevertheless, that relationship, that, that faith commitment uh, bound them together and gave them a greater sense of camaraderie. And they, they referred to scripture in lots of the 2000 letters that they exchanged back and forth. So I'll, I'll stop there, but a few observations about FDR. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate that very much. Um, Randall, why don't we ask you, uh, uh, the same question. Yeah, I, um, FDR would have been my second <laughs> choice in that in that uh, um, particular time period. But I guess I was thinking of, of Woodrow Wilson, uh, who, for obvious reasons, who was uh, a Southern Presbyterian, grew up in that tradition, uh, very much shaped by it, uh, very much theologically grounded in that tradition, went on, of course, to teach uh, at uh, Princeton or um, College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University during his time there, and uh, uh, he was he was uh, profoundly shaped by that tradition. Um, but here, I think, is an example, one example of a president where you have this uh, disjunction. I would argue between um, uh, faith, belief, and policies, because um, one of the things that Wilson is, is best known for, aside from his foreign policy accomplishments, I think, which were certainly informed by his faith, but you look at uh, his uh, resegregation of the civil service in Washington, D.C., um, and you, you try to square that with his professions of faith, and I, I recognize the difficulty of retrojecting contemporary sensibilities onto historical figures. But nevertheless, uh, that could have been a prophetic moment for him, I think, to, um, uh, to, to uh, distance himself from his own Southern traditions. Uh, instead, he uh, reversed course on the issue of the civil service. I think the other thing I want to say here, and this is um, uh, related, I think, to, to some of the conversations we've had already, uh, be, beginning with Jefferson, you do have this uh, very important 
notion throughout American history of the separation of church and state. And I've just, um, you know, Gary was mentioning his wonderful book on Churchill, which I have yet to read, but I'm sure it's great. Uh, I just have a book out right now about the separation of church and state in American life. And I think one of the reasons that we're even having this conversation is that religion has flourished in America precisely because of the First Amendment, precisely because of the separation of church and state. And uh, as we go through, as we kind of do uh, skip through history here, what what keeps um, coming to mind is these various attempts throughout American history to make or to legislate or to specify that America is a Christian nation. And so far we've been able to turn back all of those misguided efforts but uh, they continue to the present. And uh, I think that's very important for understanding the centrality of religion and faith in American life, uh, including the presidency. Thank you, Randall. We are listening to Gary Scott Smith, who before his retirement chaired the history department at Grove City College and is the author of Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents and Randall Balmer, the Mandel Family Professor in the Arts and Sciences at Dartmouth College and author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. Viewers, again, as a thank you for joining us this morning, please go to download.storyofamericanreligion.org for a free gift that captures a towering national figure in 20th century American history and one who occupies a very important place in the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. Let's uh, go back to Gary. Um, Gary, World War II to the present. Can you paint for us a religious portrait of one of the presidents in this time period that um, is important to you as an American historian? Well, Randall, sorry, but he keeps asking me first, but hopefully I won't steal any of your thunder this time. I'm going to actually uh, go with Joe Biden. I have not um, researched him to the extent that I've researched the other folks that I've written about it at length in my two volumes that you mentioned. But since he's the current president and he's just taken office, um, I think it's worthy of exploring him a little bit, as well as talking about his Catholic predecessor, John F. Kennedy, and maybe some differences between the two of them. <laughs> so I'm going to really talk about the two of them together. So. As we know, um, I, I was reflecting on the inauguration itself and thinking if you were a passionate atheist, um, you're probably not having a very good day because <laughs> it's been emphasized that he had this worship service before he came. And now we have his Catholic priest from Wilmington, Delaware, uh, giving an invocation, which is pretty much a mini sermon. Uh, we have Amazing Grace being sung we have America the Beautiful being sung. We have him leading the nation in silent prayer for pandemic victims. We have his ending of, you know, God bless America, which by the way, um, if you go back and look at presidential speeches, um, that really only begins with Ronald Reagan. That, that is not uh, something that's throughout American history that presidents end their speeches that way. But since Reagan, it seems to have become uh, pro forma. But anyway, we have all of that. Um, and then we have a benediction by a, a, an African-American uh, Methodist from Wilmington, which is also a mini sermon. So, you know, religion is front and center in the inaugural events, uh, the inauguration itself. 
And, you know, what does the passionate atheist think about, you know, him and Harris swearing, so help me God, at the end of their, their invocation? So, you know, again, the trappings of religion, at least, but I would argue more than trappings, um, perhaps some fairly meaningful aspects of religion. So Biden, of course, is it goes to Catholic schools. He's been a devout Catholic throughout his life. Um, he attends mass regularly. Um, to what extent does his faith influence him? I think that's a deeper question. I was listening last night to an interview that he did uh, with the editor of America Magazine, and he talked about, and I didn't get the exact year, but I think it was around 2016 or so, he goes to Georgetown and, and gives this speech, and they ask him to talk about his relationship between his faith and his policies, and he said something like, I've never really thought too much about that, okay? So to the extent that his faith has shaped his policies, it is a more recent development or something more in the background, but not out there very explicitly. But certainly in the 2020 election, uh, capital was made about his faith uh, in numerous ads that were put forth, interviews, uh, newspaper articles. Uh, certainly the Democratic uh, National Committee was promoting him as a man of faith. And what comes through there and what he said is the same line that Barack Obama used, that I am my brother's keeper. Uh, he also talks about helping the least of these. Um, Ronald Sider had an organization uh, about um, <clears throat> uh, people, evangelicals who would support Biden during the election because he was more of a true pro-life candidate than Donald Trump because various policies that Biden was promoting were more pro-life than simply the abortion issue that uh, Trump trumpeted. So I would argue that uh, faith is going to be significant uh, in his in, in his uh, administration. Uh, exactly how uh, remains to be seen. Now, if you want to compare that briefly with, with JFK, um, well, here's one interesting comparison. In the 1960 election, John F. Kennedy got 80% of the Catholic vote. In this election, depending on what surveys you look at, uh, Biden got barely 50% of the Catholic vote. So it was very split. Uh, whereas in the election of 1960, it made all the difference in the world. It, it brought Kennedy the election, particularly because of the concentration of Catholics in states with a high electoral count in the North and East. So I would argue that for Kennedy, uh, who also attended mass regularly throughout his life, uh, faith was not very significant. And that's not just because of his so-called moral lapses um, his deceit, his marital infidelity, um, but it also just because he didn't uh, really connect faith with policy. I tried very hard in the chapter I wrote about him to find connections, even with things like the Peace Corps, and I found that very difficult to do. So I would argue that uh, Biden is a more authentically Catholic leader who will probably be a lot more pleasing to the Catholic hierarchy than Kennedy was. A lot of Catholic uh, leaders said during his presidency, we would have been better off policy-wise if Nixon had been elected because Kennedy's bending over backwards not to favor the Catholic Church on issues like aid to parochial schools. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Gary. I remember reading in a book uh, about foreign policy that uh, Kennedy uh, explicitly, he and his administration, pushed aside religion and religious freedom um, as tools in their administration and they think it's because of the huge issue that America had with his Catholicism and, and listening to the Pope instead of to the people. So I don't know, Gary, if that 
matches your understanding of how he did or did not use religion in his administration? Oh, absolutely. Uh, just to quote one quote out of many, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who worked closely with him, said, there was a little organic intellectual connection between JFK's faith and his policies. And I would agree with that. It's very difficult to find those kind of connections, even though he was a, a Catholic, a practicing Catholic who went to church, mainly to please his mother, Rose, who was very devout. Okay. We'll have to see how that plays out with our second Catholic president, I guess. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Randall, let's uh, turn some yeah, time over uh, to you. Let me uh, just couple of quick footnotes to what uh, Gary had to say. Uh, of course, the so-called religious issue was a big issue in the 1960 campaign, and, and uh, people were making a fuss about Kennedy and his Catholicism, whereupon Jackie Kennedy at one point said, in asked exasperation, I don't know why people are making such a big deal about Jack being Catholic. He's such a bad Catholic. <laughs> and uh, and I, I guess to, to follow up on Biden, and I really appreciate Gary's comments on Biden, because I think Gary, he's exactly right about that. Um, one of the things I find just so mystifying is that uh, the American Catholic bishops apparently are uh, distressed about uh, Biden's Catholicism and are threatening to censure him to uh, effectively to excommunicate him because of his stand on abortion, where whereas uh, many of these same Catholic bishops are uh, quite uh, enthusiastic about Donald Trump. And uh, I, I did not bet recently asking in what moral universe is there any comparison between the two that there would be that sort of uh, uh, consternation among the, the Catholic bishops. But to uh, get back to the question at hand, I, I guess I have to choose Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, has uh, been an object of fascination for me ever since college when uh, I began hearing that uh, an evangelical Christian was making a serious bid for the Democratic nomination. And uh, having grown up in uh, within what I call the evangelical subculture, I was just uh, astounded by this. Uh, we very much consider ourselves at that time to be uh, um, uh, marginally uh, um, on the margins of American society. And uh, for, for one of our own to be making a serious run for the presidency uh, caught my attention. And uh, one of the reasons, I, I think at, at the move of several decades, it's, it's easy to lose, lose sight of how improbable Carter's candidacy was in 1976, uh, just uh, the month before he announced his candidacy for the Democratic nomination, Gallup poll did a survey asking Americans their views on 32 potential candidates for president in 1976 and how they would rate them. Jimmy Carter's name was not among those 32 names in, in uh, 1974. Uh, so his meteoric rise to the nomination and then to the presidency, I think is really quite uh, one, of the, one of the great stories in, in uh, American political history, certainly presidential history. <clears throat> and he did so uh, because Americans were reacting. I, I, don't, I think it's impossible to imagine Jimmy Carter being president in 1976 had it not been for uh, Richard Nixon and Watergate. Americans were looking for what I call a redeemer president, uh, someone who uh, would uh, speak the truth. Uh, one of the taglines from his campaigns was, I will never knowingly lie to the American people. And uh, at that time, uh, in the wake of the Nixon presidency, that was just 
kind of unheard of. Uh, Americans expected their president to lie to them uh, because Nixon did so uh, um, so frequently. Um, that's, I guess I'm bracketing out the, the, the immediate past president in that conversation, but uh, just in order to give it some sort of context. Um, and I would, I argued, uh, I have argued, and I continue to argue that uh, Jimmy Carter is one of the few presidents, certainly in recent history, whose faith I think directly informed his policies. That is to say, uh, Jimmy Carter came into office. Uh, he immediately issued a preemptive pardon for uh, Vietnam era draft resistors because he thought that we needed to put that behind us as, as a nation. He also recognized that if the United States was to have any meaningful relationship with third world countries, particularly Latin American countries, we had to renegotiate the Panama Canal Treaty to move the, United, uh, the, the country away from its colonialist past, or at least to just to move in that direction, even though that cost him dearly in terms of uh, political capital. One of his first emphases in his uh, commencement address at the University of Notre Dame after taking office was to try to move American foreign policy away from the reflexive dualism of the Cold War and toward an emphasis on human rights. Now, I think you can look back and say he was probably a little bit premature to do so because one of the defining moments in his presidency was the Soviet Union's renewed imperial ambitions in Afghanistan. But nevertheless, he thought that that was uh, the right thing to do. I think his uh, domestic policies uh, directed toward those that Jesus called uh, the least of these, those on the margins of society, uh, even though he wasn't able fully to implement many of those policies, uh, that was his uh, that was his general direction. And of course, uh, on, uh, Walter Mondale has said that on their first day as uh, president and vice president, he was uh, astonished to hear that one of Carter's goals was to try to bring peace to the Middle East. And that, of course, uh, eventuated in the Camp David Accords, the famous Camp David Accords. So I would argue that Jimmy Carter was one of the um, few recent presidents whose faith, I think, directly did inform his policies. Uh, of course, the great irony is that uh, many of the people who helped to propel him to office in 1976 turned dramatically against him four years later, against one of their own. Uh, an evangelical, albeit a progressive evangelical, in favor of Ronald Reagan in the 1980 campaign. And that, of course, I think is one of the, the, the turning points in American presidential history. Um, Reagan, uh, Carter is not often viewed as a successful president, and I'm not going to try to argue otherwise. I think uh, he was president in a very, very difficult time. One of the games that historians like to play is counterfactual <laughs> speculation. And uh, I'm sure that uh, you remember that uh, in 1976, Ronald Reagan made a run at the Republican nomination, a very serious run at the Republican nom nomination to take it away from Gerald Ford, who was uh, running as an incumbent. And uh, I've often speculated if uh, Reagan had won the nomination and had beaten Carter for the presidency in 1976, uh, would he too have been a one-term president? I suspect he probably would have been because uh, the late 1970s were, was not a good time uh, for anybody to be president. And uh, I think Carter, um, Carter suffered from that. Uh, just a final note, uh, a lot of people have made the, the point, and I think it's absolutely right, that Carter was probably 
the best and most effective ex-president in American history. My favorite quote about him comes from James Laney, who at that time was the president of Emory University. He said about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter is the only president in history for whom the presidency was a stepping stone. <laughs> and I think that uh, that captures very well uh, what Carter uh, has done since his presidency. And he has acknowledged that uh, in many ways, his post-presidential work through the Carter Center uh, was his second term. Uh, he was he has tried to do the things that he would have done had he been elected or reelected in 1980. Randall, uh, thank you. Follow-up question with Carter and his faith as in the presidency. Do, does the historical record say anything about his faith engaging in uh, the uh, hostage crisis in Iran? That that was a, a a huge event, and all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but here this militant Islam. In America, Christian, we ha what, what does the historical record say? Yeah, I, I'll, uh, I'll I'll ask Gary to chime in on this as well. But I, I I don't I never ran across anything specifically about that. I think what's what was remarkable to me about the way in which it may have affected his handling of the situation was his restraint. He was under a lot of pressure to go in with guns blazing, and he resisted that. Uh, and one of the things that Carter is most proud of is that during his presidency, not a single soldier died in military combat. Now, you may remember that he tried a, a rescue attempt, which um, failed for you know, really uh, meteorological reasons. That is a, a, a dust storm, a sandstorm uh, there in uh, Iran uh, that, that did um, cause a crash and, and eight soldiers were killed. But uh, the fact that he was restrained in his uh, attempt to, to free those hostages, I think um, uh, certainly uh, was in part informed by his faith. Okay, Gary, anything to add there? Thanks, Randall. I, I would agree with Randall that um, I can't draw any direct connections between the, <clears throat> the hostage situation and his faith. I, I would say that he was a man of deep personal piety who prayed a lot, and I'm sure he prayed a lot about that situation, sought God's guidance. Um, one interesting thing for listeners is that Jimmy Carter has taught Sunday school for a large part of his adult life, continues to do it off and on, if I understand, uh, at least until very recently in Plains, Georgia, and did while he was president, um, uh, to some extent, at a Baptist church in, in D.C., so um, he's, I, I admire Carter on a lot of levels. Um, I think he was, uh, as, as Randall said, th this was the scarcity scare. This was, they told us you couldn't have economic stagnation and inflation at the same time. And we got stagflation. Um, you know, and, and I admire Carter for saying, look, we got to tighten our belts and, and make some sacrifices for the common good. But that's not what people want to hear. And so that played into, I think, his electoral defeat in 1980, as, long, as well as a lot of evangelicals uh, deserting him because of the abortion issue, but also I think because he didn't reach out sufficiently to them. He didn't uh, put enough evangelicals in the, his, his inner circle as they hoped he would do. Um, he didn't name a liaison to religious communities until 1978. Um, so a lot of things happened, but yeah, I, I can't say anything specifically about the hostage, hostage crisis. Okay. Thank you both. Let's, uh, 
uh, take a question or two from from uh, the listeners. Here's one, and uh, Randall, we'll ask you first, and then maybe uh, Gary can chime in. With Washington, Jefferson, and apparently Lincoln denying the divinity of Jesus, how prevalent was this view among the population at that time period? You know, from that in that time period, 1776 to 1860. Randall, That's a great question. I'm not sure I can answer with any specificity. Uh, during this time, uh, straddling the uh, turn of the 19th century, you had this uh, this revival that historians call the Second Great Awakening that occurred. Uh, in three different theaters of the new nation. So in New England, uh, emanating from Yale College, uh, in um, the Cumberland Valley of Kentucky, this is the era of the camp meeting revival with a great deal of enthusiasm, a lot of conversions and so forth. And then finally in upstate New York, uh, particularly under Charles Grandison Finney, you had a revival of religion that unleashed a, 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 a wave of social reform that really defined the nation uh, for much of the, of the 19th century. Uh, and uh, the reformist ardor uh, finally drove an angry, angry South to secession uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the Civil War. So you had certainly um, uh, flashes of revival. Um, to what extent did Americans share those uh, views? Uh, it's hard to say. I, 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 certainly many Americans did, but I think it's probably also the case that a, a larger number uh, were very much engaged in, um, in particularly evangelical religion uh, in the early part of the 19th century. Thanks, Randall. Gary, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would agree with, with Randall that the Second Great Awakening was powerful in terms of impacting not just individual lives, and but stamping Christianity pretty deeply into the cultural ethos of, of the nation. Um, Unitarianism as a denomination really begins formally about 1825. And then as now, it remained a very small movement. Um, John Quincy Adams uh, and John Adams Church in Braintree becomes Unitarian about the time that Adams dies. Um, but so I, I would argue it's a very small percentage of the population. You have some people like Ethan Allen um, and Thomas Paine willing to directly attack Christianity and books. And you have some people in the early uh, part of, in, in the antebellum years before the Civil War doing the same. But by and large, publicly, uh, you did not attack Christianity if you wanted to have a good reputation. Uh, privately, yes, there were people that had doubts about Christ's deity, but very few people publicly expressing this in the uh, years before 1860. Okay. So is it fair to say that uh, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln uh, denying the divinity of Christ, that's, pro that, that's fair to say they were in the minority? I would I, say definitely. And I think Randall and I may have a different opinion about, about Lincoln. Um, I think it's clear that Washington and Jefferson denied the deity of Christ. I would tend to view Lincoln like John Quincy Adams as kind of a, a, an agnostic on the question. Uh, couldn't quite make up his mind about whether Christ was divine, um, okay. kind of went back and forth a little bit. So I, I can't definitively say that in the case of Lincoln, but yeah, so that, 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 and again, you keep this out of the public view, you know, you don't let this be known. Right. Okay. Well, and the other thing about Lincoln too, we didn't mention is that uh, he apparently dabbled in spiritualism uh, at least a couple of times, uh, trying to, to maintain contact with his, deceased uh, uh, children. And uh, so he 
he was pretty eclectic spiritually, I suppose. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, let's do this second question, then we're going to move to conclude and get some closing statements from both of you. Here's a question. Uh, when did the idea of faith outreach in a presidential campaign develop? And what does that tell us about American religion? I'll defer to Gary on that. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't well, I, I guess it depends on what you mean by faith outreach. Um, I would argue that religion was tremendously important in a lot of elections, most notably, as I mentioned earlier, 1800. Uh, then again, in the 1896 election between William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley, uh, it was very, very important in the 1928 election when you also had a Quaker running against a Catholic, Herbert Hoover versus Al Smith. Um, it was very, very important in the 1960 election. It was very, very important in 1976. And, and particularly, even more so, I think, in 1980 with the rise of the moral majority and some of the evangelicals deserting uh, Carter for Reagan. I think it was very important in the election of 2000, 2004. Um, but in terms of specific faith outreach, uh, I would say that's more a product of the last 40 years or so. And Republicans have tended to do that much more effectively than Democrats, in part because of the evangelical relationship with the Republican Party, and also because the Democratic Party has such a large number of constituents who are um, not religiously uh, inclined. Um, a, a huge portion of the nun population that's about 20% today would identify as independent or Democrat. Um, so that, that, makes an that makes it hard for Democratic candidates to make faith appeals to the extent that Republican ones do. Okay, thank you. Maybe we can do this last question from from uh, listeners and attendees. Uh, let's make the answer short because I want to get your closing statements. What were Ronald Reagan's beliefs about God and religion? What was his? You know, what's Ronald Reagan's religion? Yeah. I expect uh, Gary's going to have a more positive <laughs> understanding of this than I do. I I, I find it uh, so striking that. Uh, as Billy Graham and others were seeking to undermine Jimmy Carter's and his uh, quest for a second term, uh, James Robeson was dispatched to talk to Reagan to ascertain his uh, faith. And uh, Robeson reported that Reagan said that Jesus was more real to him than his own mother. Um, so I, I guess you know that's kind of the the launching point for the religious right. Whereas, uh, by the way, uh, John Connolly was also uh, uh, um, uh, contacted by this uh, a member of this group trying to understand his understand his grasp of the faith, and uh, he was asked uh, one of the final questions was, "What's your view on secular humanism?" And no one apparently had briefed. Uh, Connolly, that secular humanism had become the evangelical code word for everything that was wrong in America. And uh, Connolly replied, well, I don't know much about it, but it sounds good to me. So at that point, I think the uh, religious right turned toward Reagan rather than Connolly. But uh, I'll, I'll defer to Gary about uh, a statement of uh, Reagan's faith. Thanks, Randall. Well, I'll try to keep it brief. He grew up in a very religious household. His mother was very devout, uh, disciples of Christ slash Christian church background in Dixon, Illinois. Uh, for most of his life, he identified with Presbyterianism, Bel Air Presbyterian Church in California. Periods of up and down in terms of his involvement with the church and his faith. Um, he claimed that after his uh, assassination attempt very early in his first term, 
that that was a spiritual awakening for him, that God kept him alive to fulfill a, a spiritual mission. So I would argue that it was fairly mainstream evangelical during his presidency. Uh, he was known for, again, not attending church either, like FDR, but part of it being because of uh, fear of, of endangering worshipers. Um, we could we could talk till the cows come home about how much his faith impacted public policy, but I would just say succinctly, fairly mainstream evangelical Protestantism. Okay, all right, fair enough. Well, let's let's end by uh, getting a closing statement from each of you, and here's how I'm going to frame it. Uh, before we conclude, uh, Gary and Randall, uh, please share any lessons or takeaways from your understanding of American presidents and their religion either in terms of important historical transformations you have charted or are charting, or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment. Randall, let's start with you. Well, I've, uh, I'm, I'm going to broaden that a little bit, if I could, I, I th- and, and just make a, an observation that uh, I think that at various times, particularly I'm thinking over the last half century or so, uh, Americans have been more or less interested in a presidential candidate's faith or religion. Uh, certainly after Watergate, there was a huge interest in this. That Americans wanted to know that their presidential candidates had a moral compass. And it's, I think it's no accident that Jimmy Carter emerged as not only the Democratic nominee, but also the uh, was elected president in 1976. I think we had this again uh, after the uh, Trump presidency. Uh, but at various times, it's, it, it kind of waxes and wanes. And I think one of the difficulties is that we want to understand a presidential candidates' moral compass, as I said, but we don't know how to ask the question. Uh, so the, the question we ask is, are you religious? Well, you know, that's not a very good index. Um, all of us know people who are not overtly or uh, uh, demonstrably religious, but who have a strong moral compass nevertheless. And so it's, it's, it's not a very good question. Uh, so I think we have to find different ways of, 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 of focusing on that. I guess my, my, the classic example for me was uh, the Des Moines Register debate in December of 1999, prior to the Iowa precinct caucuses, when uh, the candidates were asked, who's your favorite political philosopher? And, and George W. Bush responded, Jesus was his favorite political philosopher. And you know everybody got a chuckle out of that. But what if there had been a substantive follow-up question? Well, Jesus told his followers to welcome the stranger to care for the least of these, uh, to be peacemakers. How will that affect your conduct as president? Instead, we kind of uh, settle for these gauzy affirmations of faith from our presidential candidates. I think we need to probe a bit further. Okay, thank you, Randall. Very helpful. Gary. Well, I would say a hearty amen to everything Randall just said. Um, Poll after poll, Americans say that they want their president to have strong religious convictions, but I don't think they want their presidents to have very definitive religious convictions. That scares a lot of Americans. So they want them to be religious in the abstract. Um, I would say that this thing about having a strong moral compass has been um, challenged in the most recent presidency and um, is now not as significant to evangelicals as it once was, unfortunately. But I would argue that 
uh, everybody has a belief system, a worldview that directs their thinking, their living. Um, and a lot of people can't identify it very clearly. I would say perhaps from Joe Biden's comment uh, that he made in that America interview, he couldn't uh, until fairly recently. But nevertheless, uh, I think that if you, if you follow the moral precepts of scripture, it's going to make you a better person. It's gonna help you be more successful as a president. It's going to provide more public justice, more compassion, more policies that uh, impact the people on the margins in our society. And I would hope that that is what people would, presidents would draw from the Judeo-Christian tradition, that these are, that these are attributes and precepts that should guide them and direct them. And I hope that happens very fully in the case of Joe Biden. Thank you. You have the last word. Uh, thank you both. We have been listening to Gary Scott Smith, uh, who before his retirement chaired the history department at Grove City College and is the author of Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents, and Randall Balmer, the Mandel family professor in the arts and sciences at Dartmouth College and author of Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. Viewers, again, as a thank you, please go to download.storyofamericanreligion.org for a free gift which, which uh, captures a towering figure in American religious history. Um, to close, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the National Museum of American Religion uh, is dedicated to telling the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, convinced that understanding this history will help us all see the revolutionary nature and indispensability of the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States and essential to its capacity to fulfill its purposes in the world. Randall and Gary, please, another heartfelt uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule this morning to talk to us. It's been very enlightening for us, and I hope our listeners, and I hope it has been for you as well. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure. Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.